Heavenly Father, we are so, so grateful for your daily sustaining grace, even allowing us today, Father, to uh, wake up and be able to come to worship you corporately as the body of Christ. Thank you for the wonderful unity that we share, Lord, because of our identity in Jesus Christ. And for all those who have placed their faith in Christ, we know that we are one body, one church. And so, Lord, I pray that we would be people who would, uh, Lord, celebrate that beautiful unity amidst our diversity. pray that this morning would be a reminder of that and that we would respond to your truth, Father, in a way that honors and glorifies your great name, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. We'll turn in your Bibles to Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3. Verses 9 through 11 is our text for this morning. But I want to read so that we can be reminded of the flow of thought from Titus chapter 3 and verse 1. And the Word of God says this, Titus 3, 1, Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us, Richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently, so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. Verse 9, But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies, and strife and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Reject a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. May the Lord bless the reading of His Word. Well, as we've been seeing in this letter, Paul, writing to Titus, goes back and forth between instructing Titus to instruct the church concerning the, the godly conduct that flows from the gospel. You know, we just celebrated right now the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. And part of us remembering the death of our Lord Jesus Christ and His resurrection as well is so that as we are reminded of what He has done for us, we would be propelled all the more to worship Him on this earth and to live for His glory in anticipation of His return. We proclaim the Lord's death until He comes back. And so in response to what Jesus has done for us, we live a certain way, beginning with worshiping the Lord in spirit and in truth. And so back and forth, uh, back and forth here in Titus, as Paul writes to, the, to Titus, he's instructing Titus, Titus, this is the way that God's people should be living in response to what God has done in their lives. And we just read in chapter 3, verses 1 through 2, how we are to live in society, beginning with our response to our governing authorities, but to the world at large. And why are we to live that way? He he tells us in verses 3 through 7, in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ, in light of God's saving grace in our lives. The gospel is the foundation for all of this, is what Paul is saying essentially in this passage. 
And then he calls the gospel and the implications of the gospel, godly living in chapter 3, verse 8, he calls that a trustworthy statement. We can bank on this gospel. We can, we can rest our lives upon it. And he says, these things, concerning these things, verse 8, Titus, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things, these things are the gospel and the implications of the gospel, i.e. holiness, are good and profitable for men at the end of verse 8. And we saw last week that God's people, if we are to make a mark on this world, if we are to display Christ to this world in a way that honors the Lord, we must keep these three priorities in mind. We must have gospel conviction, meaning that everything that we do in life is shaped by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Everything is tempered, informed, instructed by the gospel of Jesus Christ and what He has done for us. We must have gospel conviction. We must be committed to gospel proclamation. We must live the gospel, but also proclaim the gospel, speak forth the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why Paul tells Titus in verse 8, these things I want you to speak confidently. And by way of application, the people of God are to speak these things confidently as well. So gospel conviction, gospel proclamation, and they are to be committed to gospel fruitfulness. Throughout this book, we see that over and over again, Paul's, Paul tells Titus, Titus, tell our people to engage in good deeds, to meet pressing needs, to not be unfruitful. And also in verse 8, he says, tell them to, if they have believed God, that they would be careful to engage in good deeds. If they are genuine believers, Christians, then they must have gospel fruitfulness. And so this is the way that we need to live, beloved, even in our context today, if we are to be committed to um, displaying Christ to the world. Now, as he transitions to chapter 3, verses 9 through 11, I think one thing that we learn very quickly, and even in our experience, we can, we can affirm is that when we as individuals or as a community of Christ are committed to these priorities of gospel conviction, gospel proclamation, and gospel fruitfulness, it is inevitable that Satan will seek to detract us from our mission. It is inevitable that this unity and discord will be sown whenever we are committed to advancing the cause of Jesus Christ. And so Paul now instructs Titus in verses 9 through 11 as to how to deal with such discord and disunity that might arise in the church or that in the, in the case of, of their context had arisen in the church as we learned from chapter 1, beginning with false teachers who were promoting false doctrine. But it's more expansive than that as we're going to see. A wise Christian man once told me this, and it's proved to be true in my life and ministry. Kempis, the issue is not that you personally won't experience conflict or opposition or there won't be disagreement. Or that whatever church you pastor at will be problem-free. The issue is, when conflict arises, how will you respond? And how will the church that you're pastoring respond? And beloved, that statement has only proven to be true again and again in my life and I know that in the life of our church and many churches around the world, opposition is inevitable. Conflict is inevitable. Why? Because Christians are not problem-free 
people. Amen? Christians are not problem-free people. Christians are not sinless people. We are human beings, and we are sinners who are imperfect. And though we have been called to holiness, that doesn't mean that we are sinless. That is why we needed Jesus Christ. Because we are not righteous. Because there is no one that is good except Jesus Christ alone. Only Jesus is good. Only Jesus is righteous. Only He is. And so the church is not perfect. It's made up of sinners who are saved by grace if you are a believer. We were saved by grace. God's unmerited favor found only in Jesus Christ. And we are preserved and kept by grace. There's nothing we bring to the table because we are unrighteous people in and of ourselves. We are clothed in the righteousness of Christ, but that doesn't mean that we will not sin and we will not uh, fall short of who we need to be, even in the way that we treat one another. I remember one, uh, one time uh, evangelizing uh, this guy with my, with my buddy. And the conversation got a little bit more intense as my buddy was sharing the gospel with this guy. And eventually the guy asked my buddy, because um, he lived in the community where our church building was. And he said, well, what church do you guys go to? And my buddy told him, well, we go to such and such a church. And the guy essentially said this, I'm not going to go to that church. That church is full of sinners. <laughs> my buddy, who, who had a good sense of humor, says, yeah, you're right. That church is full of sinners. Come join us. <laughs> because the church is full of sinners saved by grace. Amen. Saved by grace. So there's going to be, sparks are going to fly when sinners get together. I love that, the title of that book on marriage. Um, I forget the, I think it's Dave Harvey, um, titled, uh, When Sinners Say I Do. And his whole point in there is, here are two sinners coming together, and a man and a woman in this covenant of marriage, and what's going to happen? Sparks are going to fly because they're sinners. And beloved, that's the same thing, uh, the same thing is true in the church, isn't it? There's only one righteous, only one good, one good one, and that is who is Jesus Christ. And so this means that conflict will take place. And so our expectation and our anticipation should be that when conflict uh, arises, that it is to be expected and we need to be prepared to address it in a loving, gracious, and biblical manner. That is how we need to be anticipating this conflict and respond rightly. In the face of conflict and disagreement, we should be committed to preserving unity. And notice what I just said right now. I said preserving unity. I use that word very intentional, preserving unity, not creating unity. And that's how Ephesians chapter 4 verses 1 through 3 puts it. If you will go with me to Ephesians chapter 4, I want to show you this. We will experience conflict. It is inevitable. And in the midst of that, we are called to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, actually, let's pick it up in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 20. Paul, expounding upon the beauties of what God has done in salvation for sinners through Jesus Christ, sums it up in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20, by just glorifying God because of what God has done in salvation. He says, Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. 
And then, beginning in chapter 4, verse 1, all the way to the end of the book, he begins to instruct these, these Christians how they are to conduct themselves in the light of what God has done for them in salvation. And he says in chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore, in light of everything that God has done for you in salvation through Jesus Christ, I, the prisoner of the Lord, Paul was in prison when he writes this, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. And how, what does this worthy walk look like? With all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance, and I like the word forbearing their better. Tolerance is the idea that we need to just put up with each other. Has the idea of showing forbearance with one another to one another in love. This is loving forbearance. This is what it means to walk in a manner worthy of God's calling. And notice verse 3. Being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. As believers, we do not create unity. We preserve, as he says in verse 3, the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, why is that such an important thing? Because of the fact that if we forget about the fact that we are just called to preserve unity and not create it, then we are, in a sense, at least functionally, forgetting about what Jesus has already accomplished. And I want you to see this back in chapter 2 and verse 11. Jesus has already established unity. He has already established unity. Chapter 2, verse 11. Paul says, Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, that is the non-Jews, the nations, those who are not uh, from Israel, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time, that is before coming to know Jesus, at that time you were separate from Christ excluded or alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That pretty much sums up who we were before Jesus Christ, right? Hopeless and godless. Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, in union with Christ, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We were just reminded of that during communion, weren't we? That we have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That is the death of Jesus Christ, the atoning death of Christ. Verse 14, notice what it says about Jesus. For He Himself is our peace. That is an emphatic structure there. He Himself is our peace. He and He alone is our peace and peacemaker. What did He do? Verse 14, who made both groups into one... And broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. In that context, what Paul is referring to there is that the, he's pointing to the greatest divide that has ever existed in the church. Which is a separation between the chasm that existed between Jews and the rest of the nations. That's what he's talking about here. Jesus has broken down those walls. The Jews were God's chosen nation, as you know. They were God's specially chosen nation, but they were not exclusively God's people. They were God's special chosen ethnic nation through whom God would bless the nations through the Messiah that would come forth from Israel. And the Jews over, over the centuries forgot about that. 
That they were not exclusively only the people of God, but God had chosen them so that through them the Messiah would come and He would bless the nations, others who were non-Jews by faith in Jesus Christ. But what happened is that the Jews became exclusivistic. They became elitist, thinking that they were better than other people because they were national Israel, forgetting about the fact that salvation always has been by faith in God and ultimately His Messiah. And so they had forgotten about that. And what Paul is saying here is, Jesus is the great peacemaker who has broken down those walls. Now those who trust in His Messiah and Jesus Christ are one. He's going to go on to tell us this. Look at what else Jesus did in verse 15. He's abolished in His flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in Himself, again, emphatic structure here, in Himself He might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. Not only was there a, an ethnic divide, if you will, but the most important separation was the moral separation between us and God. And what Paul is saying here is the law's function and purpose was to ultimately lead people to recognize that only Christ fulfilled the law perfectly and the righteousness that the law required. And so Jesus has fulfilled the law of commandments. He's, he's nailed your debt to the cross, and now you are one in Jesus Christ because you have been reconciled to God. And then it says in verse 16, And He might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by it having put to death the enmity. And He came, came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near, verse 17. For through Him we both have our access in one Spirit to the Father. Please take note of how many times Paul in this text talks about Jesus as the one who has come and established peace. He is the great peacemaker. Verse 14, He Himself emphatically is our peace. He has established peace at the end of verse 15. He came and preached peace, verse 17, to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near, so that through Him, verse 18, we both have our access in one Spirit to the Father. And what is the result of Jesus' wonderful atonement? Look at verse 19. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. See, those who have trusted in Jesus Christ as Savior, as Lord, are now part of one family of God. And God in Christ Jesus is our heavenly Father now. There's a new relationship, and that relationship is a familial relationship. He's our heavenly Father, and we are brothers and sisters in Christ. Look at verse 20. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself, yet again emphatically, Jesus alone Himself being the cornerstone and whom the whole body being fitted is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. And so Paul is saying, in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ, in light of what He's done on the cross, Jesus has established peace. And therefore, when you go back to chapter 4 of Ephesians, that's why he says in verse 3 that we are to be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace because Jesus has already established peace, beloved. He has done that. First and foremost, vertically, between us and God, by faith in Jesus, we are reconciled to God so that now He's our Heavenly Father, but also with all of those from every nation, tribe, and tongue who have put their faith in Jesus Christ, we are one in Jesus Christ. One. And there's unity there. And it's unbreakable. 
and unchanging and indestructible, no matter what takes place in our society or in our world. Jesus is the great peacemaker who's already, who's already nailed our debt to the cross, and in Him, we are all one and unified. And we're called to preserve that. I want to remind you this morning that there is no other identity marker greater than the identity marker that you have in Jesus Christ and with other believers in Jesus Christ. Nothing trumps that. Everything else is secondary. We should not be looking to uh, identity markers such as our social standing, such as our economic bracket and where we fall, rich, poor, or middle class, and, and zero in on that so that it separates us and divides us. We shouldn't be looking at our ethnic background and where we come from so that those things divide us. We should not be looking at, at any other issue that we can divide over. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, and that is your greatest identity marker, beloved, and that defines everything else that you do in life and everything that you engage in. And I'm amazed as I look at the church at large right now, at some of the pet peeves and fights that Christians are, 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 are picking with one another and forgetting about the fact that Jesus has gone to the cross and one of the, the implications of the gospel of Jesus Christ after the reconciliation with God through faith in Jesus is that now we are one in Christ and nothing else, nothing else matters more than that. Nothing does. And we're called to preserve that beautiful unity that we have in Jesus Christ. And so the issue is not that we create unity, but that Jesus has already established unity and we're called to preserve that unity so that we experience in our ongoing interaction with one another the joy and the peace and the benefits of of this beautiful unity. We're called to do that. Everything else is secondary. Everything else is peripheral, even if utterly important as well to discuss and talk. Everything else is subordinate to who we are in Jesus and what Jesus has already done to reconcile us to God the Father. Now with all of this in mind as an introduction and just foundation, go back to Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3. Because in these churches... Obviously, there was already discord and disunity taking place, spearheaded by false teachers, as we saw back in chapter 1. And so the thing that Paul wants to address with Titus here is how might these believers preserve that unity that Jesus has established in the midst of those people who are now trying to detract away from the gospel. And so what I want us to look at here in verses 9 through 11 are two practices in the church that are needed if Christ-honoring unity is to be preserved. If the Lord Jesus Christ has established this unity, then we should be preserving that unity. But it's going to take some work, isn't it? And we're going to see in verses 9 through 11 that if we are going to to function in a way where we are loving one another to the glory of God, we need to practice certain things as sin comes up in the church and as unwise conversations take place in the church. So here are two practices, among others, that this text, verses 9 through 11, tells us are needed in the church if Christ-honoring unity is to be preserved. First of all, we must wisely avoid divisive issues. We must wisely avoid divisive issues. And we see this in verse 9. Now, to be clear, this does not mean 
that Christians should not discuss matters that are difficult. That Christians should not have conversations. That Christians should not wrestle with issues, especially doctrine. That Christians cannot disagree even about key issues taking place. Or that Christians cannot even debate key issues. What this is telling us, as we're going to see, is that we need to be careful how we approach those things, that they don't detract away from the central focus of our mission here in this earth, which is the gospel and the holiness that flows from the gospel. That's the issue. So look at verse 9. But, this is a contrast to verse 8, where Paul has said to Titus, speak those things, speak the gospel and their, their need for holiness, Expressed in in good deeds. He says, these are the things that you need to focus on, Titus. But on the other hand, verse 9, avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless, he says. Avoid these things. In contrast to the gospel, focusing on the gospel and what flows from the gospel, which is holiness and godly living. Titus, you, beginning with you in your preaching and teaching, but by application, the rest of the church, you need to avoid these things. You need to run from these things. There were people in that context, spearheaded by the false teachers, as we've seen in chapter 1, who loved to dwell on matters that were fruitless and unhelpful. That detracted away from the gospel and did not lead to holiness either in their lives or in the lives of those who were following them. And we saw that in chapter 1. That these false teachers and those who were following them professed to know God, but by their deeds they denied Him. Because false doctrine will lead to ungodly living. But sound doctrine, healthy doctrine, leads to sound, healthy living. And so there were these who were focusing on things that were not profitable. And specifically in that historical context, these issues were of a Jewish nature, especially surrounding the law of Moses. It's hard for us to identify with this today. But during the first century, one of the major issues, it's not the major issue with regards to salvation and how people were saved was essentially this. How does Judaism, the Jewish religious religion and practice of the day inherited from the Old Testament, which was good and profitable and that God had given to the, his people, especially with the law of Moses, how did the, how did the, the um, Judaism relate to or fit with the gospel of grace that now the apostles and the early church were preaching and teaching? And so we see various texts like Acts chapter 15 and even the whole book of Galatians in the, uh, addressing how the early church sought to teach the fact that it wasn't that the law was bad or evil or anything, but that its ultimate purpose was to reveal the sin of people and the fact that everybody fell short of the glory of God to ultimately point to the Messiah of Israel, Jesus Christ, who perfectly fulfilled all righteousness. So over and over again, we see that issue in the, in the first century, that salvation was by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone, and that the law came to reveal the holy character of God and our unholiness so that we would be driven to, be, to, to go to Christ as our all-sufficiency. Christ, Christ was the fulfillment of the law. Christ was the one who perfectly fulfilled all righteousness. And Christ was the one that, in going to the cross, paid the penalty for sin that the law required for all lawbreakers. 
That was the point that the early church came to, to emphasize again and again and again. All that you need is Jesus Christ. Jesus is sufficient in his perfect life, in his atoning death, and he is victorious in his resurrection and exaltation. And yet, even though the early church sought to, sought to uh, strain uh, people out, false teachers who were promoting something in addition to Jesus Christ, there were those who insisted that people needed to adhere to certain aspects of the Mosaic law, in addition to believing in Jesus to be saved. Jewish feasts and festivals. They need to, you need to be circumcised in addition to coming to know Jesus Christ. You need to hold on to those ethnic markers that were a part of us, said the Israelites. And no came the preachers of the true gospel saying, no, 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 no. The greatest identity marker is not circumcision. It is faith in Jesus alone. Faith in Jesus alone. But these people love to debate all of this stuff. And in essence, rob Jesus of his sufficiency. Of the fact that he alone was necessary for salvation. And it's evident that here, this is what Paul is exhorting Titus about. This is happening in the church. So note in verse 9, these people were consumed with foolish controversies. Foolish controversies. That is disputes, questionings, debates. The word foolish, they're foolish controversies, is the word from which we get moron, which means stupid, or, or controversies lacking in judgment. These individuals did nothing else but consume themselves on a continual basis with debates about senseless things that were unhelpful and unfruitful, that detracted away from the context from the gospel of Jesus Christ and from true holiness as the fruit of the under, their understanding of the gospel. These foolish controversies, notice in verse 9, also had to do with such issues like genealogies. Genealogies. In Jewish history, and even in, to us, according in our Bibles, how beautiful is it, is it to be able to go to a genealogy to trace, for instance, the family line of Jesus, the human family line of our Lord in Luke chapter 3, or His kingly line in Matthew chapter 1. And for the Jews, genealogies were crucial that way. To even track one's right to the priesthood, if you were of the tribe of Levi, they were very valuable. But for some Jews in that day, these had gone beyond their good use, their profitable use to debate and speculation over these. Perhaps to boasting about their spiritual privileges over others. To create a sort of elitism based upon your tribal lineage. What was to have been a, a, a joy for them and a source of, an object of gratitude for their national heritage became the opposite. It had become a way to to compete with one another, to one-up one another, perhaps. Verse 9 says that they were also, this was all leading to strife and dispute, specifically about the law. Strife means conflicts and discord arising from futile debates about the, the law of Moses. Disputes can be translated battles, quarrels, fightings. Whereas discussions and debates continued, they even escalated to the level of heated and possible physical strife amongst them. We don't know for sure if, obviously these were professing believers arguing about these things, thinking that they were doing good and arguing about all this stuff, but it was leading to heated debates amongst them. You can imagine how some of the false teachers who were teaching people were even leading, according to chapter 1, verses 10 through 11, to destroying whole households over issues like these. And even in their own lives, 
Such debates were not bearing the fruit of holiness. And so this is why Titus in chapter 1, verses 13 through 14, as we saw a while back, is to silence these individuals who are focusing on these things that detract away from the gospel of Jesus Christ, from the mission of the church. Now, at best, we can only speculate from Titus what the specific issues were. But Paul does not leave ambiguous what he wants Titus to do. Look at verse 9. And by implication, the rest of the church. In verse 9, he says, But avoid these things. Avoid these things. These divisive issues. Meaning, shun them. Go around those things. Know where the dangers lurk and avoid such things, such trouble. Paul says, Titus, don't focus on those peripheral matters that detract from the gospel and the godly conduct that flows from the gospel. They are potholes that you are to sidestep because they harm and they damage you and God's people. Don't focus on those things. And beloved, if they needed to do this, how much do we need to do this in our day and age if we are going to preserve unity in the church? We need to be very, very careful. We need to avoid unhelpful, harmful, fruitless discussions that ultimately lead to strife and disunity in God's church. And we need to be diligent, diligent in that. Now, some people look at this and any cry from the Word of God for unity, and they say, yeah, that's why we should not be arguing about doctrinal matters. Because doctrine divides, doctrine divides. And I say, yes, preach it. Doctrine divides. And you know what? If we're talking about core central doctrines, then that is a reason to separate. And that is a reason to divide. But more often than not, our problems in division don't have to do with core doctrinal matters. They have to do with important but secondary peripheral matters. That's more often than not where our disunity arises from. But doctrine is very important. It is very, very important for us to affirm certain things. What are some of those things that we should divide over? I think at the top of that is the issue of your view of Scripture. Your view of Scripture. That is really a foundation. Is it sola scriptura? Which means that the Scriptures are the ultimate and final authority for all of faith and practice. As believers, if you don't believe... Or as a person, if you don't believe that the Bible is your final and ultimate authority, then you can live however you want. And everything's up for grabs, even salvation and how salvation comes to be. And so you must affirm sola scriptura, the fact that the Bible is the final and ultimate authority for faith and practice. That is a core central issue. And we have many, many quote-unquote so-called evangelicals and especially even preachers and teachers of God's word who don't see the Bible as the ultimate and final authority. And that becomes problematic. What are some other issues that we should divide over because doctrinal unity is very important? Well, the other one is the gospel. The gospel. The pure, unadulterated gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean, all we've got to do is look at the book of Titus. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. Titus chapter 3, verses 3 through 7. Paul roots all godly conduct in a right understanding of the gospel of God's saving grace found only in Jesus Christ. And so we must agree on the, on the gospel. And not only that, but let's take it a step further. On the exclusivity of the central person of the gospel, the Lord Jesus Christ. The fact that only He and He alone saves. 
And the reason for that is because he and he alone is both God and man, 100% God, 100% man. And only he and he alone, therefore, qualifies to be the redeemer of mankind. He and he alone is God and man. We must also agree on the doctrine of the Trinity. We must affirm the doctrine of the Trinity. Does it mean we're going to be able to slice and dice all of the texts about the Trinity and all the intricacies and even that realm of mystery where we cannot understand how that all works together? Absolutely not. We spend our whole lifetime dealing with that. And we're going to spend the whole of eternity trying perhaps to understand that. But we must affirm it if Scripture teaches it, right? We must affirm the fact that we worship one God in three persons. I would add to that the necessity of holiness in our personal lives and in the life of our, of our church corporately. Just as Titus emphasizes that if we are committed to following Jesus Christ, there should be holiness that must be evident in our lives as the fruit of gospel transformation. And so these are some core central issues and some others that have to do with our salvation that have to do with your eternal soul and your eternal well-being that you must affirm even if you spend the rest of your life trying to understand all the glorious and beautiful intricacies of this precious doctrine. Doctrine matters. Doctrine matters. And if somebody doesn't agree with one of these explicitly, then we should divide. We should separate. Now, a caveat there. Make sure... That if you're going to divide with somebody over a doctrinal matter, that it's truly because that person explicitly, knowingly rejects after you have shown them the evidence of what the Word of God says, they reject those doctrines. I am floored over the years by how many Christians pick a bone with another Christian about some doctrine and they end up using the word heretic very flippantly as if everybody who doesn't agree with what I just said is a heretic. Everybody that doesn't, that doesn't understand these central doctrines is a heretic. No, my friend. No, you need to be very careful with throwing around the term heretic. You know, I learned this lesson from my travels with a previous ministry, going and traveling and training it to foreign countries. You know, beloved, more often than not, as we did conferences on the gospel and on the church and on the doctrine of God and bibliology, the doctrine of the Bible and many other things, more often than not... 90% of the time, I can tell you this, roughly, the issue was not that people were just rebellious, these believers, they rejected everything that the Word of God says, at least in these foreign countries that we went to, or they said, we're not going to believe that, we're not going to affirm that. More often than not, the issue was ignorance. Ignorance. They just were untaught. And a lot of them were in churches where sound doctrine wasn't emphasized and taught. And so therefore, we couldn't just sit there and say, oh yeah, you sinners, you heretics, you guys don't affirm these things, you're heretics. That, wasn't, that wouldn't be loving of us to do that. So what will we do? Well, let me show you where that's at. Oh, is that the way that you guys do that? Let me show you in the Word of God where you, where, where, what, what the Bible affirms regarding uh, biblical leadership in the church. Let's talk about that. And we would begin to open the texts. And these people were very teachable by and large. And they affirmed what the Bible said. And you know what? Now even years later, I hear wonderful stories about how they're following the Word of God and obeying in those areas. And there were, few and far between, some people who were just rebels. And they would leave those conferences. And some people who were definitely heretics, who definitely didn't affirm, for instance, the fact that Jesus was 100% God, but that He was a creation of God the Father. 
elite and, and preeminent, but a creation of God the Father. So those people, definitely we would question and confront. And so I guess what I'm saying is we need to be very, very careful that in emphasizing doctrine and the centrality of doctrine and affirming some of these core things, that we're not so quick to pull the trigger on individuals in the church without showing them from God's Word where the Bible says that. And we need to love one another enough to be able to do that. And then after that, if somebody knowingly rejects what Scripture says on a central issue, then there is reason to separate and divide because doctrine matters. Our unity is based upon our identity in Jesus Christ and the faith, for, the faith once for all delivered to the saints, right? As it says in the end of Jude. So doctrine is very, very important. Now, beyond these central matters and some others, we need to be very, very careful with secondary matters of doctrine. Things like eschatology. Things such as the manifestation of the, uh, uh, whether all spiritual gifts are for today in terms of service gifts, or they are not for today. How all of those things work out, we need to wrestle in Scripture together, but are they reasons for us to divide? No, they are not. They are not reasons for us to divide. And we need to be very, very careful with that. Also, and this is a huge one for us, in, in our Christian churches. We need to be careful not to make matters of personal preference as binding for all people. It is amazing how many people, how many Christians make issues of biblical principle, guidelines from God's Word that should be obeyed, but there's freedom within those biblical principles to apply them in certain different ways as individuals, as families, even as a corporate body in comparison to another corporate body somewhere else. It is amazing how we make those preference issues matters to divide over. I'm just amazed. Amazed. And I'm sure you could come up with all kinds of examples about this. You know, I've been reading for the last few weeks just uh, coming across articles and different things because obviously I've, I've been more concerned about health these last few years. There was a point in time when I can travel anywhere and do anything that I wanted to do, and I think that just God has just destroyed me and broken me down with my pr- and my pride in that by humbling me in the area of just not always having the best health, as you guys know, and even being out of this precious pulpit many a time and having other brothers who are able to step in and, 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 and lead. So... <clears throat> Because of that, I've been reading more and more articles on health and all of that, especially in Christian circles. And, you know, it's so fun to, to see believers just kind of debate and discuss issues of health and dieting and foods and all of that. But it's also like eye-opening to see how some of these believers, like they live in that world. Like it's always about who doesn't do it like me in terms of health. Who doesn't diet the way that I do? Who doesn't, who doesn't buy all organic food? Right? There's the ongoing debate in evangelical circles about organic versus non-organic and all of that. Listen, I would prefer to have organic every single day, but as you know, that is very expensive stuff, right? And yet many of us don't consider that, but we judge others, whether actively or passively, because they don't eat a certain way. They don't eat organic food. I read a couple of sharp articles from ladies going after each other, not in our church, uh, somewhere else, about this debate about organic versus non-organic. And nowhere in those articles was Jesus even brought to bear upon the issue. Because you know what? He, they weren't focusing on Christ. They were focusing on a peripheral secondary matter. 
You know, a lot of ladies, not only in our church, but all kinds of different churches. I was talking to a pastor, a fellow pa- a pastor friend of mine at the Shepherds Conference, and he was talking about how all of these ladies at his church um, are into essential oils, right? Hey, don't go there, pastor. I don't want to go there. <laughs> are there enough elders in here if I need to, if I get attacked? Loose here. I'm good. But I'm going to go there, okay? Listen. Even, even those beloved close to me love essential oils. And you know what? I love essential oils on my little feet at night and all of that. I really appreciate that. I think there's value to that and, and the sense and all of that. And I know some of you ladies try to defend it even from Scripture back in the days of Jesus, you know. Listen, that's all fine and dandy and fun and everything. And there's nothing wrong with those things for any of us. Unless you start making those markers of some elitist group in the church. Well, hey, you have to do essential oils. Don't do anything, anything, uh, 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 don't, don't, anything that's prescribed by doctors. You have to go to the natural way, you know. Organic food and essential oils and everything else that's natural. Listen, we shouldn't be picking fights or even being, um, I don't know, informally divisive with one another or indifferent to one another because we don't see everything the same way with regards to those things, beloved. It's about the gospel. It's about holiness. And if those things in some way, shape, or form, you can justify that they could lead you to greater holiness because it relaxes you. Wonderful. Maybe it leads you to be wanting to be more in the Word and, and relieve certain stress. And all. But listen, ultimately your sufficiency is not in essential oils on any kind of dieting. It's in Jesus Christ through His Word and the Gospel. Amen? That's the point. That's the issue. So these and other health type issues must never become topics for division and disunity amongst us. What are some other things? You know, in Christian circles, I'm so glad that this, uh, to me at least, from my perspective, from where I sit, has not even been an issue in our church, at least for a while. I don't know how it was prior to me being here. But, you know, in certain Christian circles... Um, I just I just talked to another friend at the Shepherds Conference whose church was almost on the verge of splitting over the issue of methodology of educating their kids. Should we be people who public school? Should we be people who homeschool? Or should we be people who are half in, half out, essentially in a charter school? What should, or should we be private school people? Whether um, secular private school or Christian private school or even Catholic private school. Which way should we go? And he was so mourning and grieving over the fact that there were all these divisions and strifes over that, those issues of education. Listen, beloved, we should not be having arguments and even being indifferent to one another. And treating each other, looking at each other critically because of methods of education. Those are not central issues. Distinguish between principle and practice. There's freedom and latitude as to the methodology of your educating your kids, little or older, right? And especially in today's day and age with the, with, with our, our, the secularization of society, it may be that you might need to homeschool your kids. The Lord bless you. And some of us do that. But it doesn't mean that that is the way that it should be done for everybody, Right? Or that everybody, because sometimes there's reverse rigidity too, or a reverse legalism. We look at the homeschool people and say, oh, those homeschool people are so weird, right? Why don't they send their kids to public school? Listen, that is like reverse legalism right there, right? It cuts both ways. 
we who public school some of our kids or charter school or private school should not be looking at homeschool people and being critical of them as well or indifferent. They need to use wisdom. They're using wisdom and, and looking at God's principles and looking at what their children are at. And if they decide, given the wisdom that God has given them to homeschool their kids, listen, that is good and that is okay. What is the principle? Train your child. Discipline, dis, discipline your child. Point your child to Jesus Christ in the discipline and admonition of the Lord. That is the chapter and verse biblical principle. And what that looks like as far as the education of your kids, there's freedom and latitude, beloved. That we shouldn't be dividing over those issues. There's all kinds of different things in evangelical circles right now that people are strifing over. You know, there's social issues that divide. Social issues that divide. Sanctity of human life. Christians going after each other over that. Um, Leadership in the church. Poverty in America. Immigration. Our government, authoritative, our authoritative government, people debating over those issues, Christians fighting amongst each other over those kinds of things, racial harmony, social justice, so many issues. I can go on and on and on and on about things that are, that are wreaking havoc amongst believers who have been unified by the blood of Jesus Christ and yet we are picking fights about with one another about things that are definitely important, definitely that are crucial, that we should be discussing, that we should be wrestling with, that we should be talking about the implications of the gospel related to those things, beloved. But there's a godly way to do it and an ungodly way to do it, right? And we need to be very careful. Again, going back to last week, that everything that you are wrestling with, with other people, whether out in society, before the, the unbelieving world, or even with other brothers and sisters in Christ, are shaped by the lenses, the glasses of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And not by how other people who don't even know Christ, how they do things, how they protest. We need to be very, very careful about that. Christians should discuss. Christians should debate. Christians should and can even disagree on key issues. But we need to be careful, beloved, that we don't strip Jesus Christ from those issues. Otherwise, it's a hopeless situation because Jesus, as I said last week, is the only one who is able to deal with the human root problem of sin and all of its evils that flow from sin. Only Christ can do that. Only the gospel can deal with the the volcano of the human heart, if you will. Which is precisely Paul's point in Titus, isn't it? In the way that you behave in the church, in the way that you behave in society, even towards corrupt government, let the gospel frame that. Let the gospel shape all of that. Let the gospel be what gives you hope in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation where God is, people want to pretend that God no longer speaks to key issues in, in society and in life. Let the gospel be what informs all of those things and gives you hope. With all of these issues, beloved, let's be careful that in light of the indestructible and unchanging peace that Jesus has brought before God, first of all, with God and with one another, that we diligently preserve the unity that he has established. And again, along these lines, remember that there's, there's clear chapter and verse scripture on certain subjects in the Bible. And we as believers, those things are not subject to interpretation. We need to follow them and obey them and not debate those things. 
So we must obey and respond in obedience. And that's not an issue of, well, if you interpret that passage differently, it applies differently. I can go marry another man if I'm a man. Oh, no. God speaks very clearly about the fact that marriage is between one man and, and one woman, and we cannot debate those things. Those are not subject to our interpretation. We simply look at the chapter and verses, and we follow God's word. But then, moving out, there are things that come to us in Scripture by way of principles, guidelines, not necessarily chapter and verse, guidelines that that instruct us how we should live. And within that, another concentric circle flowing from that is, as we look at those principles, they may apply different to different people. And so what do we do? We apply wisdom, right, individually, and as families, and as a corporate body. And above all, what do we do with those issues so that they don't lead us to division? We must rise above all of those issues and circumstances and conversations to recognize that it's about the greater progress of the gospel in all of those things. I want to show you this in Philippians chapter 2. Go with me to Philippians chapter 2 quickly. Or Philippians 1, sorry. Paul, when he writes Philippians, is writing from jail. And you would think that Paul, being a solid preacher and a man who had given everything for the sake of the gospel, would never have opposers, let alone opposers who were believers and brothers just like him, just like him brothers in Christ. And yet, as he's sitting in jail and he's giving the Philippians a report about how he's doing and the gospel progress uh, through his ministry, he talks about these detractors as well. Look at chapter 1 and verse 12. Now, I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. He says, you know what? I may be in jail, but you know what my focus is? On the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Garden to everyone else. And that most of the brethren, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. You know what Paul is saying? He says, I'm sitting in jail, beloved, but listen to me. I am not having a negative attitude because even here, I'm evangelizing the soldiers who are here. And the, and the gospel is advancing amongst the unbelievers. And that they're coming to know Christ. And not only that, but brethren, in verse 14, are trusting in the Lord more. They're growing in their faith because of my imprisonment. So my imprisonment is bearing gospel fruit, is what he's saying. The gospel is advancing. And then look at verse 15. Some, and, and, and the antecedent of some, is the brethren in verse 14. These are, from what we can look here in this context, brothers in Christ. It says, some of these brethren from verse 14, to be sure are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. So there's guys that are doing it, from what I can tell, says Paul, out of wrong motivations, and others are doing it from goodwill, right motivations. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. So there are those who don't like Paul, who are Paul's rivals. And they may be unbelievers, but from what he can tell in here, there's nothing that says that, he's not saying that they're unbelievers. They seem to be brethren, but for some reason or another, they don't agree with Paul. So what Paul says in verse 18, what then? What do I do with these individuals who, are, who, are, who don't like me? What do I do? Only that in every way, he says, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. 
You know what Paul says? He says, you know what? There's guys that are preaching Christ out of good motivation, out of love, and they're supportive of me as a gospel proclaimer. There are others who are also proclaiming Christ. He didn't say that they're preaching error. Then they're proclaiming Christ. And they're also brothers in the Lord. And they have some personal pet peeves about me or a bone to pick with me about whatever. They're rivals of mine. He says, what? How do I assess that? He says, only that in, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. He says, as long as Christ is proclaimed and the gospel advances, that's all that matters to me. That's it. Paul rises above his circumstances, rises above his disagreements on potential peripheral matters. And he says, when it comes to the gospel, if they're preaching Jesus Christ and people are coming to know Jesus Christ, then that is all that matters. And in that, I rejoice, he says. Oh, that we had that kind of an attitude. Oh, that we had that kind of Christ-exalting perspective. For Jesus to be magnified above anything, even when people have personal pet peeves against us, that we would still rise above that and think, you know what? As long as Christ is at, his cause is advancing, I am good with that. And everything else is subordinate to the greater purposes of Jesus Christ being exalted. Beautiful. And so this is what the text is getting at. He says in verse 9, those things are, avoid those things, Titus, for they are unprofitable, that is harmless, fruitless, and useless. They're futile, they're vain, they're not accomplishing the purpose of advancing the gospel from the wider context of Titus, which Paul has told Titus to emphasize. So Paul is urgently commanding Titus and by application the rest of the church to avoid hazardous and detrimental issues that are unhelpful, unprofitable, and don't advance the gospel and the godly conduct that flows from the gospel of Jesus Christ. Peripheral issues that could lead to disunity and division in the church. And beloved, we need to be so, so careful with these and many other issues. And there may be a a chance that you are wrestling with that with another believer right now. Or some issue. Listen, put on your gospel glasses. Put on your gospel glasses. And remember that the ultimate priority for you and I as believers, even when we're debating unbelievers, is not that you win an argument like a lawyer, but that you exalt Christ and the gospel advances. Amen? That is the issue. That is the issue. So if Christ-honoring unity is to be preserved, then we must wisely avoid divisive Issues. We're going to spend the next hour now talking about this. Just kidding. Just kidding. Some of you were getting ready to fall off your chair, right? Next week we'll look at the second, the second practice that helps us preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, oh Lord, thank you for the gospel of your Son Jesus Christ. Thank you for the doctrine that leads to sound living in our lives. Father, help us to be about that. Help us to be about the message of the gospel and living out the implications of the gospel even in the, in the way that we treat one another, Lord. And as we deal with hard issues in the church, with unbelievers, Father, may we be godly people who put on gospel lenses and we discuss and we wrestle with and we even debate and even choose to disagree, Lord, within gray areas, Father, in a way that honors you and that advances your cause. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.